Good morning. I was just so delighted today when I walked in, looked out, and saw Dr. Burl Dinkins with us today. We're so thankful to have you here and thankful for your many years of ministry here in Orlando, and we're honored to have you here. I was also just delighted by the, uh, all the participation so far. Um, I thought Susan's prayer was beautifully preparing us for today's message, and uh, the choir, wow, where Jesus says, you know, I will be with you always, and you gave us that prayer on the other side, so... Jesus will answer that prayer. That's great. Um, and also, wow, um, Matt, when God gave out voices, he really did it for you, brother. <laughs> I know we're not to covet, but I, I admit, I'm going to strain myself right now. <laughs> That's a great gift, brother. God bless you. Uh, Andrew Walls tells the story of the intergalactic religious studies time traveler. Yes, the intergalactic religious studies time traveler. And he was interested in studying uh, Christianity or the, those who follow Jesus uh, on the planet Earth. And his spaceship, because it could travel through time, was calibrated to actually descend onto Earth at various points at the heart of the Christian movement. And he managed to take five trips to earth. The first trip happens in 37 AD. His uh, ship lands right in Jerusalem and he discovers a group of people who are Jews. They're all Jews and they call themselves people of the way and they actually see uh, Jesus as the fulfillment of their hopes and their heart, their prophecies, and they are so eager to share this message with others, and they eagerly read through their scriptures and saw Jesus as the fulfillment of all of their hopes. So he takes careful notes and he goes back to his planet, and then, of course, his ship comes back again, and this time it comes back and lands in the year 325, the Council of Nicaea. And he's suddenly a fly on the wall, as you might say, of a group of 1,800 delegates, 300 bishops, and many attendants about 1,800 people from all over the world who are coming there to discuss, amazingly, the precise nature of Jesus Christ, the same figure that the Jews were talking about. In this case, he really couldn't find too many Jews around. And it was amazing the kind of diversity of this group as he observed them and their, their arguments over the precise language to describe this person, Jesus Christ, and their eagerness to share this message around the world. Well, his ship uh, gets recalibrated, and he comes back again, and this time he arrives on the rocky coast of Scotland to observe a group of Celtic monks standing, yes, neck deep in icy cold waters reciting the Psalms. And they are calling for the peoples of that area to, to give up their false deities and to follow Jesus Christ as the Lord they actually use in there and have with them uh, physically, they have documents of that very document that was hammered out in Nicaea. And they were using that language to share with others about Jesus Christ. Well, his spaceship uh, gets recalibrated. He comes down this time in Exeter Hall in London in 1840. And there he's surprised because the church has suddenly seemed to turn like really white. And all these white people were talking about 
uh, going to this place called Africa with the gospel and bringing Bibles and cotton seed. And they were actually showing from their scriptures, they were showing how, in fact, the Bible did support the 1833 um, prohibition against slavery that had recently appeared in Britain. They also uh, were really interested in proclaiming Christ to the ends of the earth. And they even had personal copies of these scriptures. Well, his ship gets recalibrated and comes down the fifth and final time, and his ship lands in Lagos, Nigeria. And suddenly, the church seems to be filled with Africans. And they, he comes upon a scene with a group of Nigerians from the Aladora churches dancing before the Lord down this pathway. Hadn't seen that in Exeter Hall. And they were crying out and saying, they were calling people to come to this meeting and see the power of Jesus to heal people through the power of prayer. Well, this uh, anthropologist, this intergalactic, by the way, he, by this point he had become the full professor of comparative interplanetary religions. And as Andrew Wallace tells the story, he, uh, he, of course, compiles all of his notes, and he wonders, wow, what is it that could possibly tie together this diverse group of a group of Jews who followed Jesus, a group of Asian delegates into Nicaea, modern-day Turkey, Celtic monks in ice-cold water, British missionaries, pretty well-dressed, frankly, and a group of Nigerian Aladora Christians dance in the streets of Nigeria. And they determined, he determined there are three things that really bound this group together. First of all, they all had very high reverence for Jesus Christ as Lord. Even though the early Christians called him Jesus Christ, and later Lord Jesus, they all revered him as the Lord and as the Messiah. Secondly, they all had a very high view of Scripture and the Word of God that tied all these groups together. And finally, they all believed that this message should be shared with as many people as possible to bring this gospel to everyone on the planet. I think that says a lot about the church, doesn't it? Because if you think about the church, it is the most diverse movement in the history of the world. And what this space traveler could not recognize is that it was much more so than even he realized. And look at the church back across through time and around the globe. In our text uh, today, we are continuing this series, which is now rumbling on uh, throughout the semester, but it will be completed before you graduate, um, of looking at the heart of God for the nations. We spent quite a bit of time on the Old Testament, and we are now unfolding several texts from the New Testament that are often referred to as Great Commissions or the Great Commission. Um, I didn't quite finish Matthew, so we were revisiting Matthew a bit and then going over to Mark. But the Great Commission is a term which should refer to really five texts of the New Testament that conclude Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's the effective conclusion to John, though we'll look at that more later, and then Acts 1, verse 8. Now, the, we shouldn't tie it to any one particular passage, but you should also know that the phrase, the Great Commission, which is a term that most of us would know well, is a term that's relatively late in the history of the church. And I love the fact 
that we can say as Christians that when a phrase like this, which doesn't actually enter, ever used into print for the first time in the year 1899, is the first time anyone uses the word, the phrase, Great Commission. But isn't it great that we can say that that was like not that long ago? You know, I love that. For, from Christian, that's like last Tuesday, you know, 1899. You know, this is not ancient history for the church. So if you go back and look at the history of how the church understood what we call the Great Commissions, it is a pretty remarkable story. Because you might expect that all through history, people reading Matthew 28, the text that was just read to you, or Mark 16, 15, 16, or Luke 24, John 20, 21, except Acts 1, 8, and just filling this with, wow, this amazing mandate to go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel. It absolutely does not happen. In my previous life, I've done quite a bit of research on this point, and I know it to be, in fact, true. It's simply, for example, I must give you at least one, Martin Luther quotes our passage, Matthew 28, 51 times in his writings. And Martin Luther used this passage to defend the Trinity. He uses it, I think, over 30 times, I recall, to defend baptismal formula and all kinds of other things, but never once regarded this passage or applied it to what we would call the mission of the church, to do anything. Absolutely not done. And not done in the patristic period. It's not. Uh, Thomas Aquinas quotes it quite a bit, but never once in what we call a missionary setting at all. And the, there are many reasons for it I won't go into, but the main reason is because they simply believed that it had already been fulfilled. So they didn't really have any problem with this. I mean, the clear meaning of the text is pretty clear. It's clearly a mandate by Christ for church to do things. They just thought it had already been ticked off. So, for example, Simon of Cyrene, God bless his heart, he was responsible for the entire continent of Africa. Okay, Wow. I mean, it's amazing the kind of the, the views about this text and how it's fulfilled, which goes beyond our time here. But I want to come back to what I didn't get to last time in Matthew 28. And that is that this passage, in fact, is true for all of the Great Commissions, are filled with two themes we never talk about. And I want to talk about it a little bit. Doubt and fear. Because the minute you mention the word Great Commission, you immediately can picture a church, you know, on the go. You can almost picture, you know, the dry ice going and Jesus is there, you know, with his long robe, with his hands raised, the church eager to go out and share the gospel. But when you read the passage, um, actually what we have is the 11 disciples are in Galilee to the mountain Jesus told them to go to. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Did you notice that? But some doubted. Now, that's a really important phrase because you now I know uh, John Wenham makes the point, and he may be right, I don't know, but he makes the point that when Paul refers to Christ having appeared to 500, we don't know when that occurred, and he uh, argues it was here. And so this is really a reference to a much larger crowd, and maybe, maybe 50 of them doubted or whatever. But the text doesn't mention 500 here, though it may be true. It simply talks about the apostles gathering, and some doubted. Now, if you go through this, we'll see in Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel ends on a very fearful note. So you have doubt and fear. You have Luke, who tells us not to go and do anything, but to wait. Wait in the city until you've been clothed. You can't do anything worthwhile unless the Spirit clothes you. And then John repeats that, and they're behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. 
So there's this amazing, in the, in the very matrix of this great command and commission of the church, there's interwoven the, the human realities of fear and doubt. Now I've been, I've been like, all my life, I've been like the leaders of everything. I, I, when I was a Cub Scout, I, next time I was like the head, the Cub leader. I was in the Boy Scout. I became the Supreme, the, the, uh, the, the Senior Patrol Leader. I was in college. I was elected college president. Everything I ever did, I got put in leadership. I come to Asbury. I'm kind of the president. <laughs> I don't know what happened, all right? So people often say, assume, if you're a leader and you have a long line of being leaders of various things, I was a faculty member, I was the head of our you know, department, et cetera, et cetera. That therefore, you have no fears or doubts. And sometimes, some of you are headed to your first leadership responsibility. You're going into the church, and maybe you might be uh, named as the first pastor or perhaps the first uh, female pastor the church has ever had or just the fact that you're made the leader of the church and you haven't really led anything before. Don't think that you will go, should go into that with no fear or doubt. If you think there was not times as serving as your president, when I didn't wake up some mornings or maybe in the middle of the night, very afraid about, I could give you a long list of things. I, there's a lot of things I can, I can be afraid of about a lot of things. Or just doubting, doubting uh, my abilities, doubting my capacities. All that, I've had all of that. I, it would be wrong to, tell, to try to tell you that somehow another when you're a leader, you're just like massively just embodying uh, confidence in everything you do. Now, I do have those moments by the grace of God. But the great thing is when you have moments of fear and doubt as a leader, you know what, what happens to you? You flee to the cross. You flee to the cross. All right, so it, it's not incompatible. In fact, God actually weaves into the very narratives of the most important commissioning, you might say leadership of the church. He's telling the disciples, you're in charge. Can you imagine, think about your 12 disciples or 11. They've already lost one, right? There's 11, okay, you're in charge of like bringing this message to the ends of the earth. Yeah, I've got a lot of fear and doubt about that. Um, so the point is, is that we flee to Christ. We trust in Christ. And then Christ exercises his leadership through us. It's crucial to all leadership. Also, this passage frames the whole passage. That's what's so beautiful that the, the choir sang the hymn they did. Because the whole Great Commissions is framed by two realities that we, again, we don't note. One where Jesus says... All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now, Matthew begins, remember, remember the devil had said he had all authority. Jesus reminds him, actually, I do. And then it ends by him saying, and I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I'm telling you, you can do a lot of good ministry inside that parenthesis. All right, so when you go into your ministries, if you remember that the authority to exercise the ministry of the gospel begins with Jesus Christ, that buoy, buoys you up. It's a huge, and then the latter part of the parentheses, oh, and by the way, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And by the way, it's that phrase which forced the church to re-examine this text in the 19th century, and actually be fair, the Jesuits in the 16th century, to say, wait, maybe this is an ongoing command, and maybe Sauron of Cyrene didn't evangelize the entire continent of Africa. 
And so this, these little parenthetical sects are so important. And then last time we only focused on the heart of it in terms of make disciples and the imperative there, which is very, very crucial. Now let's, uh, let's go on over to Mark's gospel because I really want to link uh, Matthew's uh, commission to Mark's because Mark is really, really interesting. And I don't know if, if Ben is here today, but I love what Ben Witherington says about Mark, about Mark in general, not about this text here, but Mark in general. Mark is a very uh, stark and dark gospel. And he, uh, Ben Witherington makes the point, I think it's a great point, why was Matthew's gospel included first in our collection when, in fact, Everybody, not widely acknowledged by virtually everyone, that Mark is the earliest of the Gospels. Why wouldn't they do it chronologically? And the reason is because, and this is the phrase I wanted to quote from Ben Withington, Matthew's Gospel became a runaway bestseller. I, lo- I love that line. The classic Ben Withington line. But, you know, what he was saying, this is true, is that when Matthew came out, it just seemed to be like a value-added Gospel. He included 95% of Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark in his gospel. So he, you know, he got Matthew, Mark in him. And then he included all of these all these texts that we, you know, love, like the Sermon on the Mount and like the, uh, obviously the Great Commission here and so many other passages that are found unique to Matthew's gospel that just seem to bring it out even uh, more amazing. Not to mention birth narratives, the Magi and so many other things that are unique that are found in Matthew. So Matthew becomes like, well, if you really want to read the full story, read Matthew, and Mark gets quietly forgotten. Now, I have preached in this pulpit a 25-part series on Mark's gospel. We will not revisit that. (laughs) But I do want to remind us about Mark 16 uh, in relation to the Great Commission text, which we didn't fully deal with before. If you'll notice in your Bibles, uh, after verse 8, there's a line there often. If you have a contemporary Bible, there's a line there. And this is one of those you know, challenging realities because from all that we know, the Gospel of Mark actually ends in verse 8. Now, that means the Gospel of Mark ends with the following statement. I want to read it, reread it in English, but then also make a comment about the Greek text of it. Trembling and bewildered, now, this is the closing line of Mark's gospel, okay? This has been back to the whole thing of Matthew, some doubted and all that. Here's the fear part. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Okay, so the last word in the gospel is the word afraid. In the Greek, it's even more jolting. And I love the way Bruce Metzger describes it, one of the great textual critics. He says, the end of the gospel in Greek is abrupt, both linguistically and theologically. Because in the Great New Testament, the last word in the text is the word gar. Who here knows what the word gar means? Four. Four. That is a very abrupt ending. Okay? Now, the point being that this is a jolting conclusion of Mark's Gospel. So there's many theories out there, and you will know them, of course, saying, well, the, the, this, the end of the gospel got lost in some way, you know, and so the church restored it. And so what we have is restored ending to Mark's gospel, or what the various theories behind this. And, and we, maybe that's true. We don't know for sure. But I believe that it's very likely that Mark's gospel ended it just the way it did. 
All right? He wants to leave us hanging on the fear and bewilderment that we just read for you. Now, the early church, uh, once the persecution periods got finished, they did, in fact, supply a new ending to Mark's gospel, which we have Mark 16, 9 and following. There's actually two potential endings to Mark's gospel. And they're wonderful testimonies to the early church's understanding of, and in fact, we know from the Bible, there's so many pericopes of actual sayings of Christ that are not included in the, uh, in the Gospels. There's no reason not to believe this is an, an actual pericope of an actual encounter of Christ. It's not doubting the text at all. It's just simply saying that we don't know exactly what the origin, the original origin of that part of the passage is. Now, I was, uh, had the privilege of studying at Princeton, where Bruce Metzger was, and his retirement. I had a really interesting experience one day. Have you ever been in a library, I'm sure you must have, where you're, at, you're walking through the stacks and you're reading a book or something as you walk in the stacks? You know that experience? Okay, you only read books online. But there is the experience of going down into the library, the smell of books. There's nothing like it. I, when I die, I say, Lord, may my mansion be in the stacks of a library. Okay? <laughs> that to me is like the greatest experience. You go in there and you feel the sm smell the smells and you're walking down the stacks. And I used to, I often would read like while I'm walking. I'd still do that. And so I'm walking along, reading uh, some theological book. I've forgotten what it was. And I turned the corner and there was someone else doing the same thing. And we turned the corner simultaneously and we crashed into each other. And after I dropped my books and picked and grabbed my glasses, through, I looked up, and there it was, Bruce Metzger. So when I say I ran into Bruce Metzger <laughs> in the library, I actually ran into Bruce Metzger, which in my day and time as a student was, was probably, well, I regard, the greatest textual critic, you know, alive. So I thought, wow, you know, here it is. So he was kind enough to say to me, uh, after, you know, I picked up my books, and I'm so sorry, he said, you know, Let's go have a cup of coffee together. I said, fine. So we went and had a little cup of coffee together. I don't even drink coffee, but you know, I had to do it, right? So I, was, I thought, okay, here I am talking to Bruce Metzger. Let's talk about Mark 16. I mean, there's obviously, as you know, there's two big, massive, I mean, there's only two really big textual problems, and one's Mark, so one's the woman caught in adultery, right? So these are two, I thought, well, at least I'll choose one of them. Well, being a missionary, I, let's do Mark 16. So I asked about Mark 16. And so he explained to me kind of a lot of what I've just shared with you and his views on the whole matter. And he, you know, they're kind of typical things that you'd read about the text of Mark 16. So I said to him, let me ask you this. Would you preach on it? Would you recommend me as a person out there going out into the world, would you preach on Mark 16, verses 9 and following? And he said to me, absolutely. Let's all repeat for me, absolutely. It's okay, because the point is, it's an amazing canonical witness. This is a canonical witness of the church. So in this passage, in the Great Commission text of Mark 16, that we actually come upon yet another word. Remember last time we saw in Matthew, the only command is make disciples. Here, Mark, even though it sounds a bit familiar, it's not familiar. It shouldn't be familiar. It's a very different language. And the only command form there is preach. 
the proclamation of the church, preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is the only command form in very stark terms. Preach the good news to all creation. This is a global universal witness of the gospel. Those who believe and are baptized shall be saved. Those who do not believe shall be condemned. This, there's no way you cannot read this commission without recognizing the amazing uh, challenge of the church to take very seriously our global proclamation of the gospel. This has eternal consequences. We're not simply you know, the Rotary Club trying to put added value. This is a life and death matter for the people of God proclaiming the gospel around the world. This is where we get our word kerygma from. Preach the gospel. Um, okay, to close, I want to close with just the power of this because one of the other things that we can be tempted to think when you go through a seminary program, which I think, by the way, is one of the greatest experiences on the planet, is to attend seminary and to graduate. Those are good things. <laughs> but I hope you don't think that, therefore, if you do get a degree from Asbury, then all others who don't have said degrees are no longer eligible to do good, solid gospel work. Now, when we went as missionaries to North India and began to work with North Indians uh, with a school I was helping to teach in, one of the most unreached parts of North India, and uh, we have some Indians here who well know this area of India, is called Narendra Nagar. Narendra Nagar is a massive district of India. There were no Christians there, no Christian witness there. Very, very difficult. So one of our graduates, uh, named Samuel Pirajan, goes to that area to pioneer the gospel work and encounters enormous difficulties. He became so discouraged because this place, uh, uh, I can't, it's a highly mountainous region of North India, and they have a number of temples there to a goddess called Kali, who she controls that area spiritually. It's a spiritual stronghold. It's like a, it's like a principality in power over that area. So even members of the uh, Lok Sabha, the, like their, their version of our, like the parliament, will go up there and bow down before they open Parliament to receive her blessing. There is tremendous fear of this goddess, and everything and everything in that whole region of India revolves around her and the power she holds and the fear she holds. If you've seen pictures of Hindu deities, she's the one that has a garland of skulls around her neck uh, and with her tongue sticking out, dripping with blood. All right, this is a very fearsome deity that is particularly where we are in North India, widely worshipped and feared. So Samuel P. Rajan goes up there, and he has a little scooter, you know, like many Indians riding a scooter around, trying to share the gospel, defeated, 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 discouraged, 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 no openings, persecution, hit being beat upon, all the rest. And one day he stops, and I have, I've been to the, several times, actually, the very spot where he stopped his... his uh, scooter, got off of his scooter, he looked down over, and from there you can actually can see the Ganges Valley, you can see the Ganges River way down below. And he said to the Lord, Lord, why did you send me to the mountains? It's so hard up here. Please send me down to the plains where I can have some fruit in my ministry. Lord, what can I do? Now, if, if it's hard to imagine 
seeing the Ganges River as a place of fruitfulness. Okay, it is widely regarded as one of the most difficult parts of India. And yet here he is saying, comparatively speaking, I'd rather be down there. And the Lord spoke to him at that point. And the Lord said to him, when he said, Lord, what should I do? The Lord said, very interesting command to him. Said, just keep riding your scooter. That's all you need to do. Ride your scooter around these villages. Because just your presence here is putting fear in the heart of Kali. Now, that has got to be one of the most amazing statements I've heard as a Christian. What he was saying, what the Lord said to Samuel P. Rajan was, just your presence here, because Christ is in you, is more powerful than that goddess, Kali. And today, we have churches planted all through that region. I can only imagine the, the kingdom of the enemy shaking. Let me tell you briefly, in closing, about one of these, uh, our most important evangelists up there. One of the people who came to Christ pretty early on was what we would call a DOT worker. Okay, this man, Department of Transportation, this guy was a street, he repaired streets. They, they have the same you know, asphalt machines and all that. He was, do, does that kind of work. He came to the Lord, has no training, uh, no formal training, but he got gloriously saved. And so he comes under the care of our ministry. We have oversight, people that are trained to oversee him, fair enough, give him advice and input on questions he had about the Bible, but we let him loose. And this man, I'm, I'm, I'm not sharing his name because his name, I don't want to cause him any difficulties if his name was put on our tapes or whatever. But he went out, and to this day is out, making huge impact for the gospel in, North, in that Narendranagar area. He has personally brought well over a thousand Hindus to Christ personally and has several evangelists that work for him that's even more amazing. This man is an evangelistic machine for the gospel, and he understands how to present the gospel to Hindus. I was so amazed about the work up there and how it's unfolded that when I took the trustees uh, up to um, North India a few years ago, I brought Bishop Al Gwen. Some of you know him. He's the chair of our board, the, the chair of our board of trustees, and he is a bishop in the church. He spent his entire life pastoring churches like Centenary right here in Lexington and, and around, you know, in his bishop work, Episcopacy in North Carolina. This man's had a lot of exposure to the gospel work, and he himself is a bishop. So I take him to North India, and he travels. And it's not easy getting up there. It's hours and hours of travel. But I, say, I want you to see what God is doing up in Nindanagar and to meet these brothers and sisters that are up there. And he, he meets them all. And one day I had them meet this man, the DOT worker and his two evangelists that work with him. And we spent several hours uh, working through translation, communicating, talking with him, etc. And he was amazed. And this is what he said to me about a DOT worker. When we got in the van to go back down to the school, he turns to me. I said, I said Bishop, what was, what's your impression about meeting this man? And this is exactly what he said. He said, I feel like I just met the Apostle Paul. 
You see, part of the great force of the Great Commission text is to empower the whole church to bring the whole gospel to the whole world. And that's what we have the privilege of unleashing. Thanks be to God. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who not only was sent into the world, but sends us into the world. Lord, help us to never, never lose the power of the proclaimed word of God to the nations of the world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.